The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Listen, Christianity is not it is not a system. It is not a philosophy. It is not an ideology. It is not a lifestyle. Christianity is a person. And in particular, the acts of a person. And today we have opportunity to gaze upon that. What we look at today is of utmost importance. Nothing else matters after this. And so I'm going to be challenging all of us to look upon this. If there, this is going to be graphic. I will make no apologies for pulling no punches in what we're going to look at today. Because we are meant to to feel this and to understand this. So I want you to look at him today. I want you to picture this. I want you to think about this. I want you to understand this. And our prayers that God will move in our hearts wherever we are in our lives right now, that we'd be moved by this. Amen? That's our prayer. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, crucifixion, understand, was state-sponsored terrorism. And this is what I mean by that. There were lots of methods of execution, but the goal of crucifixion was more than execution. It, it's, it's not just about punishing the one who did wrong, but it's about delivering a message to everyone else to make sure they dare not follow that same path. It, it's meant to be a deterrent. It's meant to literally inflict horror on the people that see this. And it had been that way for hundreds of years. Now, the, um, the, the, the Persians had, had invented crucifixion some 800 years previously. The Romans absolutely perfected it and, so to speak, improved on it. There's no question about that. Um, and crucifixion was very common for that reason. So, for example, on the day that Spartacus died, some 6,000 people were crucified and they were lined up along a 120-mile stretch of highway. Now think about that for a second. That would be like us driving from Medford on I-5 up towards Roseburg, and for two straight hours, you're driving with people hanging on crosses all up and down the side of the road, heaving as they breathe, weeping, moaning, dying, and you're seeing it all the way up like this continuous vicious billboard. That's the purpose of it, to spread a message. Now, originally, crucifixion was just impaling. They would take a stick, sharpened at the point, and the person would literally be impaled on the stick. Effective for murder, grotesque, yes. The problem is, doesn't last long enough. People tend to die quickly when they're impaled. So they changed it over time. And the Roman method of crucifixion was shifted. It became the two different pieces of the cross. One is the part that's stuck into the ground. The other, the, the big piece of lumber, the cross beam, if you will, that was carried to the place of execution. And despite movie accounts, this was interesting to discover. In the movie accounts, we think of crucifixion as, as happening on these posts that are some 20 feet up in the air and, 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 and all this stuff. And the Jesus and the thieves kind of looking down upon all the people there. But the vast number, most crucifixions were actually very low to the ground, eye level. 
And it was on purpose. It was so that as you're walking into the town, you're looking eye to eye with the person that did this. It was so that the people that mock the people that are being crucified are right there. The insults, the shouting, the spitting, throwing of rocks. There would be constant gambling. Gambling was actually very prevalent around crucifixions. People would gather together for this grotesque spectacle, and they would actually, historical accounts say, they would bet on who would die first, who would defecate themselves first as they hung there, who would cry the loudest for mercy. So when you see these accounts of the guards gambling at the foot of the cross over Jesus' garments, common. It was a grotesque spectacle. Women were crucified, oftentimes facing the cross, so that no one would have to look upon their nakedness in the same way. Men, the other way around. And think about this. Historians tell us that there was an uprising in Israel. Sometime around the time when Jesus himself would have been anywhere between four and nine years old, depending on which historian you believe, right? And they tell us that this rebellion took place and Rome, of course, came in and just squashed this Jewish uprising, making sure that in no way would this become anything. And so what they did then, in order to spread word throughout the rest of Israel to make sure that no one else tried to do this, they crucified people all over the country of Israel. Now think about that through the eyes of Jesus, the little boy, walking around and seeing people on the cross and knowing where he's going. Now, I know you would go, but wait, did he really know at that point where he was going? Did he understand that? Well, I I can say this for certain. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ knew absolutely that he was going to the cross. It had been proclaimed and and prophesied in historical writings, in the the, the prophetic writings of Scripture, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Jesus, who created the earth, who was there part of even the inspiration that goes in and speaks these Scriptures into existence, he knew full well what the end game of this was going to be. And so the argument would be, as a little boy, as he's learning and growing, at what point does he figure some of these things out? But we know this too, right? That young Jesus, even as a little boy, is in the temple with the religious elite of the entire country debating and arguing scripture with them in a way that just blows everyone else's mind. So there's clearly a scriptural understanding about Jesus that far surpasses what we can understand. And I cannot possibly imagine that as Jesus is walking and sees that cross, that something's not sparked. And yet he goes towards it. Now, the cause of death at the cross was typically asphyxiation. Now, you were hung in such a way, as many of you know, that you're slouching, and so breathing was difficult. You would even have to push up to take a breath, and over time, as the body weakened and you became less and less able to push up against that, you would actually suffocate. Some crucifixions historically were listed as as lasting as long as nine days before the person ever died. And in some extreme cases, Roman soldiers would actually take a piece of wood and affix it to the cross as a seat to keep the person intentionally alive for a period of time because they want to make sure that that message, that warning, gets out to as many people as they can and they didn't want the guy to die too soon. 
And so asphyxiation was usually the way that people would die. And then when the crucifixion was over, the bodies were just discarded as worthless. There was no burial ceremonies. They were thrown in garbage dumps or even off to the side of the road. There's even uh, extra biblical accounts of people who they're, literally their dogs came home with like a hand or a foot or something like that in its mouth. They were just thrown to the side, discarded and ditched. It was so painful so excruciating. Cicero even said that no Roman citizen should even speak the word crucifixion because it is so barbarous and so grotesque that no Roman should defile their own dignity by speaking about it. And it was so painful and so difficult that you guys know there was a word invented based on this to describe the most extreme amounts of pain. It's the word excruciating, which literally means from the cross. This is what crucifixion is. So now we have Jesus. And already up to this point, what's happened? Well, he's been in the garden sweating drops of blood, something doctors and psychologists say that only under the most tense, intense emotional and psychological stress and anxiety, the capillaries bursting in your forehead, it's a real thing this happens. He's been arrested. He's been blindfolded with people beating him, mocking him, hitting him like Pastor Sam shared last week, unable to flinch against the incoming blows, just beating him blindfolded and then saying, hey, you're a prophet. Who was that, Jesus? Then punching him again. And who was that? Who hit you there? He's been beaten for hours. He's been sentenced to death in spite of a mock trial where the most the highest level of power in all of the area literally declares him innocent. Literally said, Jesus did nothing wrong. And then delivers him over to be crucified anyway. And so Jesus is going to be crucified. But first, the pregame is the scourging. So scourging, he's beaten. He's beaten by a flagellum or what's often referred to or named uh, cat of nine tails. If you don't know what that is, it's a wooden handle. And attached to the wooden handle are these long strips of leather. And at the end of that, there would be a, a metal or stone ball at the end of each strap that's intended to just bruise and tenderize the flesh over and over. And then at the end of that, there would be a hook, either a bone or metal hook. And the perpetrator, Jesus, would have his, his, if not completely naked, at least his jacket or whatever, his cloak removed so that his bare back is exposed. He would be then tied or fastened to a, a column or a stone, and there would be a soldier set on each side with one of them, and they would just beat him over and over. And, and there's historical writings that talk about how they would slap, and then they would do this little kind of twitch with their wrist to make absolutely sure that all those little hooks really dig into the flesh, and then they would yank that back and it would literally rip the flesh from his body. There's historical writings that talk about men being uh, beaten like this and their actual ribs breaking, cracking, and flying off their body as they're beaten like this. Many people died at the scourging before ever even making it to the cross. This is the, this is the pregame. Jesus is beaten to within an inch of his life. 700 years before Jesus was born, there's a writing in Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 14 says, his appearance was so marred 
beyond any human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, he doesn't even look human anymore, the beating that he would take. His back would literally be shredded. He's been up all night. He's been beaten for hours. His body is in complete shock. A crown of thorns is fashioned and shoved down upon his head to mock him, but also inflict pain and just add to the blood that's pouring down his face. Other soldiers gave him a reed or a scepter, and they would hand it to him mockingly, but then take, him, take it and beat him with it as well. And he's beaten to within an inch of his life till he no longer even looks human. And then the crucifixion part actually begins. So the procession, in the procession, a 100-pound beam would be put upon the back of Jesus. Think of a, a railroad tie or, or a ceiling beam that would be inside your house. Big, heavy beam, reused, stained with other people's blood, other people's sweat, other people's God knows what, would be strapped to his back, and he would walk the Via Dolorosa. It's, in Latin, it means the painful way. It's a real road. I've walked it. Everything we're talking about today is real. And so he would walk some 600 meters winding through the city to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he would be crucified. And along the way, Jesus collapses to the street. Now think about this. You've got a 100-pound beam strapped to your back, and you're falling. There's no way to break your fall. There's nothing to catch yourself. Your hands are tied up here. And so with a 100-pound beam behind your head, face plant into the street. They say that, that that's the equivalent of like a head-on collision of some sort with no airbag or nothing, just face first right into the ground. And, and obviously and understandably, Jesus is hurt and dazed and weakened and broken, and he, he can't carry now this beam that's been placed on his bloody back to go up the hill. So they grab this guy, Simon of Cyrene. There's really interesting how we have some of these little tidbits about this guy because there's lots of other people in the crucifixion story. There's lots of other people in lots of the stories of Jesus that we don't have details about, but we oddly have little details about this guy. So we know that he was from out in the country. We know he's from Cyrene. We know his name is Simon. He was coming into Jerusalem, and he just, just so happens to be there, right? And he's seeing all this happening. And so they grab Jesus's crossbeam and they put it on Simon of Cyrene's back and they say you carry this and go that way can you imagine what that was like I mean even just think what that would feel like like I mean everyone along the road watching the criminals carry the crossbeam up the hill what are they thinking about him now is he feeling now identified with shame that he doesn't believe is his? Is he wrestling with that even so? But then he's watching Jesus and he's seeing all of this stuff happen. What would that do? Now we know this, don't we? Simon's not carrying Jesus' cross. Simon's carrying his cross that Jesus will die on. Simon's carrying Jeff's cross that Jesus will die on. Simon's carrying your cross that Jesus will die on. How would that affect you? Can you imagine? Now listen, as we're talking about these things, when you look upon what's happening, and I want you to look at this, it's got to affect you. It affected Simon. 
It affected him, I believe, significantly because the book of Mark actually tells us more detail about Simon of Cyrene. It just happens to throw in, oh, he had two sons, by the way, one named Rufus and one named Alexander. That's a lot of all of a sudden information. We know his name, we know where he's from, we know two of his kids' names, just happens to be some guy, right? No, 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 because the book of Mark, or excuse me, the book of Romans later, Paul will be writing. And at the end of the book of Romans, Paul's going to say, hey, send a greeting, if you would, to Rufus and to his mother, because they've been such a blessing to me in the ministry. This guy, Simon, got saved. And him being saved, seeing what happened to Jesus, translated to his children. His children would become even leaders, influences in the early church, even blessings to Paul mentioned in Scripture, not by accident. I believe that with all my heart. So what will you do with it? This is the point of us being here today. See it, and then what will you do with it? So what do we do with it? Well, let's look at the women along the way. Verse 27 And there followed with him a great multitude of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and wombs that never bore, breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now, Slight disclaimer or uh, side note, I should say. And, and in no way do I want to take our real attention off of Jesus here. But I do think there's a place here to say, listen, we should honor some of the women in Scripture. And here's what I mean. There's a lot of men in the crucifixion account, the vast majority of which are a nightmare. They just are. Uh, extreme elements of machismo or, or um, either v- absolute like intentional opposition of Jesus or just uh, um, omitting or, or you know what I mean what's the word I'm looking for like not just totally in opposition of Jesus either through intentional action or withholding withholding action but here we have these women and there's something that tends to happen throughout the gospels that we see over and over where these women are regularly moved and follow closely. Their emotions are seen more. And I don't mean that in a negative way whatsoever. What I mean by that is we as men would do well to learn from our sisters in the church and our sisters through history and see what it should look like for us as well to follow Jesus. Because seeing these things and sitting back with our hands in our pockets right now, knowing what Jesus did for us, I don't understand that. And these women, they are following him at a time when most of his disciples are nowhere to be seen. And they're following and they're watching and they're weeping. Where some of his own disciples are in fear, scared for their own lives, they're following close, weeping for Jesus. And what does Jesus say? I know, right? Yeah. Cry more, because this is hard. No. What does he say? He says, listen, weep for yourselves, because this affects you too. He says, listen, this isn't just happening to me. What's happening to me is going to happen to you. So listen, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is, it's suffering on a level that we can't possibly imagine. But the only type of suffering that's going to be worse than this is the suffering that people will endure if they reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in this moment. That will be worse. 
It happened initially in AD 70 when he said, all of this, be, the, my rejection that Israel's doing right now is going to cost them. And in AD 70, Israel's invaded and they're wiped out and the city would become known for women being spread throughout the city, weeping over their children who were starving to death inside the city of Jerusalem. But there's something he's talking about that's much, much more than that. He's saying, listen, yes, I am suffering, but this affects you too. So don't just look at me and feel sorry for me, but pray for yourselves. Because this affects you. This concerns you. And in a day and age, all of us, listen, when it is in vogue to care about suffering, and we should care about suffering, how can we go about the world and want to alleviate suffering all over the place in all sorts of different ways and not talk about or want to alleviate the most important suffering anyone could ever endure? And that is rejecting the sacrifice in the gospel of Jesus Christ and ending up suffering apart from the presence of God in hell for eternity. That is worse. So what we're seeing here affects us. It has an effect. What you do with it will affect you. So look at him. If you're in here and you're just, ah, I've heard these stories, whatever, listen to me, this affects you one way or the other. This is either Jesus paying the price for your sin or you will pay the price for it eternally on your own. It affects you. So look at him. So what do we do with it? Well, the thieves on the cross are going to give us a great hint. So Jesus is taken to Golgotha. There he would be stretched out on that beam and railroad strikes would be driven into him. There's always been, we flip-flopped in church history on what this actually looks like. At first it was like, yeah, nail, uh, railroad spikes through the hands and through the feet. And then people were like, wait a minute, that wouldn't hold him up on the cross. It's probably in the wrist. That's a little more secure. But now they're going back and looking and finding stories about ropes on the cross beams and stuff. And then knowing, now remember, the Roman job, what they're good at is inflicting a lot of pain. And the nerve centers and things that are inside the hands, now people believe these spikes went straight through the hand, straight through the feet, rope support if they need to. This was intense agony and pain. And Jesus is hung there, probably lower to the ground than what our movies tell us. Face to face with his accusers. Isaiah 53 says 700 years before Jesus was born, prophesied that Jesus would be hung, crucified between two thieves. That's what happens here. And then, guys, look what, just look at what, it, what happens. Verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself. Do you know who the rulers are? These aren't Roman rulers. The rulers are the religious elite of Jesus's day. These are the priests, the leaders, the rulers of the religious system that had been based upon the very Old Testament, that all of these things that were supposed to point to Jesus. Here's the, the holy ones of Israel standing in front of a man who is not even recognizable, suffering like this. And what are they doing? They are mocking him. Religion is cruel. When it is built on what I've done and what you haven't done and these hierarchies developed, look at the end result of what religion is. Men whose job it was 
to be mediators between God and man. Their, their whole purpose and their role was to bring people to God. And they are standing before the one who created themselves even, who created everything, and they're mocking him. There's not even a, just a natural human sympathy involved here. Like there's not even a decency that says, ooh, this is gross, I don't want to see it, I should look away. Instead, right there, mocking him. Religion is cruel. It's why God says he despises a prideful heart. That's the end result of it right there. And these soldiers are mocking him. They're gambling over his clothes. I told you gambling was regular, actually, around many crucifixion places. And then it says that they offered him sour wine. Now let's talk about that for a second. In other accounts, at the beginning of the crucifixion, Jesus is offered this wine that's a medicinal mix. And the purpose of that mix is given to many of them to help them endure some of the pain. Remember, they don't want the guys to die too quick. So they want to sort of keep them alive a little while because, again, there's a message involved here. And they want to mock and ridicule for as long as possible. So they would offer painkillers at the very beginning. So when they do this to Jesus at the beginning of the crucifixion, when they offer him painkiller... He rejects it. He refuses it. Why? Jesus will take no shortcuts. At no point will Satan ever be able to look at you or look at me and say, Jesus, look how guilty he is. I know you paid 90% of the price, but there was another 10 you didn't cover, so make him pay. That is not going to happen. Jesus will feel every ounce of the pain, every ounce of the shame. All those nerves that he designed are going to fire the entire time, and he will hide from none of it. He will experience it all. But now, later into the crucifixion, there's another instance where they offer sour wine. It's described differently, sour wine to him. And so people argue, like, what is this sour wine? In verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Now, one theory is um, that, hey, this is what they had to drink and they were being sympathetic. That's not the context that's given us, though, in this verse, is it? It doesn't say they were being sympathetic, so they offered him sour wine. It says they were doing what to him? Mocking him. So what they're trying to do is a negative, not, not grace. Uh, another theory is that this was, again, a pain sedative, but we know this is not the case, and again, doesn't fit the context of mocking him. Third theory, something that might keep him awake, something that might make him feel everything that would keep him from falling asleep. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that drink a lot of wine and stayed awake. I don't know how that would work, but again, doesn't seem to fit within the context of what's actually here. But there's actually another one that's been uh, uh, kind of put forth in recent years that might very, it, it certainly at least fits the context. Let's put it this way. See, here's the thing. Back in that day, and they've uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered public bathrooms in that area that the wealthy would use. Now, poor people would have to go I don't, wherever they would go, but there would be these public bathhouses where the wealthy or the powerful would be able to go. And they would hire slaves to go in there. And the slave's job was essentially to be a wiper. And they would use a sponge with water on the end of a stick. And after someone would go to the bathroom, these slaves would actually use that sponge to clean the person who had just gone to the bathroom. Problem is, over time, they started realizing, hey, we're spreading some infections like this. This is probably not a good idea. And so they started using spoiled, undrinkable wine 
in order to clean the sponge in between people. There's also reports that many Roman soldiers and garrisons would carry those utensils around to be able to use as they traveled. And so many people believe now that this is literally the equivalent of a toilet brush being shoved into the mouth of Jesus as a way of mocking him as he's on the cross. And part of the crucifixion was not just pain. It was absolutely shame. They wanted to embarrass the person that's hanging there. And then they would hang a sign over his head. Not uncommon. It was part of the deterrent. So they wanted you to see the person hanging on the cross with a sign hanging up above that says, here's why they died, so that you don't do that thing. And so what do they hang above Jesus' head? Verse 38, this is the king of the Jews. This is the one who thought he had authority over us, but we know who the real authority is. No one messes with Rome. Or if you're the religious leaders, they're feeling victory out of the same thing too. You will never challenge us. You will never challenge our power. You'll never challenge our authority. And anyone who thinks they want to follow that same route, take a look at this. This is what you'll get. This is what they're showing. And yet, through all of this, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Like, feel that, would you? Don't be so familiar with those words. Like, feel that. In that moment, perhaps even almost face level with them, as they mock him, as they do all these horrendous things to them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I don't know about you, even in the smallest of offenses, sometimes for me, it might take a day or so. Father, forgive them. Can you imagine that? And so then these two thieves are here, and they're watching all this go down as they themselves suffer. And they're watching all this extra special attention that's clearly going towards Jesus in this setting. And so what do they do with it? Well, thief number one, and I'm going to paraphrase, he says this. I'm not impressed with your power because your power is not benefiting me. If you're really God, get down and heal me too. Fix me too. It's this, this prove your God by saving yourself and ending my suffering also. Now, many people in Jesus's entire ministry have been like this, right? There's been a ton of people that have been following Jesus now for years for the benefit, for the food, for the healing, for some measure of comfort or relief that Jesus would bring to the table. And Jesus knew this, and so as crowds would begin to grow, he would almost intentionally start teaching in a way that really got to the heart of why he was there and got past all this peripheral comfort and benefit stuff. And he would start saying things like, hey, the true people who follow me, they're going to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. What is he talking about even in that? He's talking about this. And the people who were there for comfort and for what he can do for them, they would begin to fall away and go, that dude's weird. I don't want anything to do with him. And now here we see the same thing. If you're God, you could prove it by getting me off of here. How many of us have been in that place, right? If he's really God and he really loves me, wouldn't he do something? Wouldn't he get me out of this? We'll get to that more in a minute. But thief number two is very different. Thief number two's response is more like this. He's holy, and I'm guilty. 
please have mercy on me. And that's where Christianity starts. I am guilty. Not the hierarchies of religion that we see right in front of Jesus. It's with a declaration. He is good and I am not. I deserve nothing. In fact, he's saying I am getting what I deserve. He's saying that as he hangs there. And he doesn't say, Lord, please help me and get me down right now. He doesn't even do that. He says, just remember me when you get to your kingdom. He doesn't even put declarations around it. Whatever mercy you give me, Lord, I don't deserve. I'll take anything. Just remember me. That's where Christianity starts. And what's Jesus' response? Truly. He's saying, hey, I'm telling you, like, like just imagine, now see this. Hanging there beside him, eyes locked, what you can see of them that aren't fully swollen and everything. And he says, says to that guy, hey, listen, I'm telling you the truth right now. I know you're hurting, I know you're suffering, all this stuff, and I know you feel guilt and all that, but listen, I'm telling you the truth right now. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's amazing. It's amazing. There was this old theology that used to say that Jesus died and then went to hell and then three days later rose again. That is not true. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is why Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. You guys get this, right? This is not just it got cloudy. The sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, if this was an Avengers movie, this is when it's about to get good, right? The good guy He's being beaten, but now, here comes the power, right? Oh, it just got dark, the ground's rumbling, that wicked religious curtain just torn in two, and then the sky peels open, and here comes the angels down, and Jesus would say, oh, you're going to get it now. But no, what he actually says, as it gets dark, he says what? My God my God, why have you forsaken me? Something's happening in this moment. There's a reckoning that's taking place. There's something supernatural, cosmic, universal, eternal. There's something happening. A price is being paid. A wrath is being poured out. And in that moment, and it's, re it's hard, people debate what, what is really going on here between the Trinity. But Jesus at least feels experientially alone. And God, at least to some degree, and people argue what this looks like. How could the Trinity actually be broken? How can all that happen? But God has turned his back on Jesus. And there's something legal that's happening here now. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin, what? Became sin. Now, think about that a second. It doesn't say 
he who knew no sin got covered by sin. It's, it's more than the innocent guy just piled the sin on his shoulders. It's more than that. He who knew no sin, what? Became sin. Deuteronomy says, cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. There is something wicked and dirty and dark and disgusting and evil that is taking place in that moment as the sin of the world is, if you will, absorbed by Jesus. What does that look like? I mean, look, the suffering is immense, right? The physical, painful suffering is immense. But I tell you, it pales in comparison to what he felt when he suddenly didn't feel his father anymore. We see this in the world today, right? I mean, you see kids without fathers or without parents who will gladly cut themselves or hurt themselves to feel physical pain to help deal with the emotional pain of being alone. And this is what's happening. My God, why have you forsaken me? This is worse. This is every disgusting sin imaginable. This is that sin that you've committed years ago that you forgot about and you wish would stay forgotten. And then every so often that thing pops into your mind and you know, you get that, oh, I wish, it, I thought it was gone. Like that. That's, it's all of that and so much more. There is a reckoning taking place as Jesus Christ in that moment is paying the price for sin. He, he is satisfying the holy wrath of a holy and just God against wickedness that deserves to be punished. And the wrath that he is, he is satisfying is the wrath aimed at us. You understand that? All of us. And he is alone. He is alone. Verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said. Now, think about this. What's the normal cause of death on the crucifixion? What is it again? Asphyxiation. That means no more wind in your lungs, right? Is this an emptiness of wind in the lungs? No. This is full lungs, full breath. Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the book of John, we get the even better words. He says with a loud voice, it is finished. That is not death by asphyxiation. That is a full-lunged pronouncement that it is finished. It is over. Later, he'll be run through by a spear to make sure he's dead, and out of him will pour what? Blood and water, which doctors today tell us that is a sign, not of asphyxiation, of heart attack. Jesus dies of a broken heart. He does not die of asphyxiation. And with the lung, the air that is left in those lungs still, he declares, it is finished. Some of the most important words of all time. What he's saying is this, there is no need for 
anything else. The curtain's torn. The sacrifices are over. What it means is, because of what I'm doing right now, you don't have to keep trying to clean yourselves up. You don't have to keep punishing yourself over and over to try to appease me by showing how guilty you feel. I did it for you. You don't have to stay away and like do enough good things to feel like you can come to me. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to fall to Satan's condemnation. I took care of it, and Satan will never be allowed to point at you who are followers of me again and say he's still dirty because Jesus will say, I did it. I took care of every single ounce of that sin, and it's finished. And some of you in here go, nah, but not me. You don't know what I did. Guys, he's forgiving the people that are murdering him in that moment. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's finished. It's over. All of it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's done. Satan can point his finger and he can accuse you all he want. But you know what we know about Satan? He's a liar. And those accusations at you now, because of what Jesus does right here, are lies. You go, no, but they're true, they happened, but they're paid for and they're gone. The Bible says that our sins have been cast to the bottom of the ocean. You have seen Nemo, right? How much light's down there? None. That means you can't see it. It's as far as east is from west. Do east and west ever meet? No. It is gone. God in his infinite mercy has passed over former sins because of this. And no more do we have to go do enough things to be okay anymore. That is done. It is finished. And some of you need to hear that. There's no more need for condemnation. There's no more need for fear. There's no more need for guilt. There's no more need for sin or shame. There's no more need for separation. You don't have to wonder about how someone can like you anymore. You don't have to wonder about whether God loves you anymore. You don't have to wonder about, am I ever going to be good enough to do anything? The answer, no. Jesus did it. It's over. It's finished. Oh, what a price, right? And Satan's control is finished. Imprisonment to sin is finished. It's finished. And then he died. Verse 50, was a good man. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. I can't wait to meet this guy. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been yet laid. It was the day of preparation. By the way, that's a real place too. I've been there. This is all real. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And Jesus died. They killed him. He did not swoon. He did not pass out and wake up in a cave. The Romans were really good at killing people. 
And if there was ever a guy that they were going to make sure died, it's Jesus. He was killed. He died. They killed him. We killed him. If I may, you killed him. And I'm among the you, just to be clear. And we call this what? Good news. <laughs> we, we honor this and think about this on what? What Friday? Good Friday. <laughs> How is that good? Like, that's a heavy story. There's people wiping tears. It's heavy, right? Why is it good? It's good for this. Listen, he did all of that for you. Not you, 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 you individually. He did all of that for you. Listen, Romans would tell us this. Romans says, God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. So you know what that means? You know what else is finished? Wondering. We don't have to wonder anymore. Because looking at the cross is the once and for all final proof positive Jesus loves you. A anything else you could wonder about pales in comparison to that. I mean, John the Baptist in prison, feeling abandoned, feeling like no one's around, sending messages to Jesus, are you the one or not, would die, and then through the halls of eternity, how it all works, would see that and feel embarrassed, if he could at that time, for asking such a question when seeing Jesus on the cross. You never, ever have to worry about it. But, but I would say it this way, the more you take your eyes off of that cross, the more you're probably going to worry. Because within ourselves, there's lots of reasons to worry whether God loves us. In fact, I would say there's almost no reasons to think he does. But when we look to the cross, we're reminded, and once and for all, it is proven. You never need to wonder, Jesus loves you. And so you can be like the thief on the one end that goes, yeah, but if you're really God and you really love me, you would do. Or you can be like the thief on the other side that just says, paradise will be worth it and I know what I deserve and you are good and you are holy you can be like the centurion the centurion that is a brutal man that is the scariest man in the world right there that guy is an expert at murder that guy is like special forces times 10 scary guy watches this and says what this is the son of God when you look at it you have to do something with it because as Jesus said to the women on the road, this affects you too, one way or the other. This affects you too, one way or the other. And listen, there is nothing more important than this. Amen? There's nothing. Paul said it, right? I have delivered to you of first importance, what? That Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scripture. That is the most important thing in the world for you to know. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Nothing else matters but that information. So what do you do with it? Christian, can I say this? Like I said, even in the prayer, I, I know for me, I was praying this and I was talking about this with some of the staff even. And 
there can be this like, okay, it's Easter's coming. It's the busiest time of the year. We got to do this and we got to do this and we got to do this. And Easter service becomes about the service and about the stuff we're doing. We don't mean for it to be that way. It just tends to happen. And you kind of end up making Easter for everybody else, which is so wrong. This is for us. So Christian, can I just say, if, if these stories over the years have just become so familiar that, that they don't affect you anymore, then my prayer for you is that you wake up from that slumber and that you would understand with new eyes and new vision and new emotion what Jesus Christ did for you and that that would happen this week that you would find time with Jesus this week that you would come to the Good Friday service this week that you would meditate on these things and that there would be an awakening in your life to this reality and if you don't know him Oh man, you need to wake up more than anybody. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean the scriptures say that your soul, your spirit is in this control of the enemy. It's like a dark slumber that you are powerless to pull yourself out of. But Jesus died to save you. And so you see this, and let me tell you, it's real. It's true. It happened. So you have to do something with it. So I want you to look at him. In a minute, we're going to have communion. I'm going to have Anthony come back up here. The communion table will be open. This is what we're going to do. If you're a Christian in this room, a believer in Jesus, the communion table is open, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a beeline to this table. And listen, do not do the religious thing. Do not do the religious thing. The religious thing says, well, I want to come to communion, and I want to come to the, to, to the front, but man, I've really messed up this week, and I messed up maybe even this morning, and I, I'm just not worthy to come up there. No one is worthy to come. No one is worthy of that. That's religion. And Jesus said what? It is finished. So our failures are why we need to run to the communion table. So you come to the table. And you throw yourself again on the mercy of Jesus Christ. You confess your sins and failures, yes. But you do it knowing that he loves you, that he's already paid the price for your sins. And that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So come to the table. If you're not a believer, I don't want you to come to the table. At least not yet. And here's why. This is not about us trying to exclude you. This is not about any of that kind of stuff. But the scriptures actually make a big deal of this. The scriptures say that to come and have communion is a big deal. The, the piece of bread and that cup, they represent something. The bread represents the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. That our sin against God was paid for by Jesus' broken body. And then that cup represents the fact that Jesus' blood that was spilled has washed us white as snow. So it's, it's not just that Jesus paid the price for us, it's that then he cleansed us. And so he doesn't, he doesn't just look at me and say, Jeff's forgiven, but he's expunged the record. He's wiped it clean, and it's, it's as if somehow, and this is such a joke, but real, that somehow it's like I'm as clean as he is. It's a big deal. But the scriptures also say this, to come and, and take of this cup and, and handle those elements, this thing that was given to us purposefully for this very reason, but to reject the actual sacrifice that it represents makes, whether you mean to or not, a mockery of what happened to Jesus on the cross. And that there's consequences for that that would not be good for you. So what I'd rather you do is this. 
look at him on the cross and come right over here where I'm standing and do what the thief did. Be saved. Say, I am guilty. He is holy. I need his mercy. And listen, this also goes for the person in the room that knows they're not saved, but you've been pretending to be saved for so long that now your pride would keep you from going because God forbid someone else in here think you didn't actually get saved all along. That pride will keep you away from God for a really long time. And Jesus, he bore your shame. So who cares? We're all saved by grace. So if you're an unbeliever, I want you to come over here and pray with me. I want you to receive forgiveness, be saved by Jesus, become a Christian, and then I want you to walk over here to this table and pick up those pieces of element and enjoy a meal with Jesus meant to reflect what he did to save you. Amen? But look at him. Church, look at him. He's magnificent. Imagine him even face to face on that cross, but realize this is the gloriousness of God on display. This is even what God was talking about in Exodus 34 when he said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty if you reject this once and for all sacrifice made by his son. Either Jesus paid for your sin or you will. But there's no, Hebrews goes on to say, there remains no other sacrifice for sin. This is it. So church, do not miss this opportunity. Amen? You're gonna stand, come receive communion, and then go back to your seat standing and worship. Men, you cannot really look upon Jesus and then sit there like this. You can't do that. Worship. If there's emotion, man, let it flow. But worship the God who has saved us. Amen? Father, may your spirit move in this time. We just thank you for this reminder of what you have done on our behalf. And Lord, now we come to the table humbly knowing what this cost but gratefully and as an act of worship to draw close to you, Lord, to remember you, to reflect on you, and to worship you. May you save those who are lost. May you continue to set free those who aren't, Lord, those who have not realized how finished all of those things really are. And may you receive the worship of your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The table's open. To the cross I cling Of its suffering I do dream 
of its work I do see For on in my Savior Both bruised and crushed Showed that God is love And God is just And at the cross you beckon me Draw me gently to my knees And I am lost for words so Lost in love, I'm sweetly broken, holy surrender. To the cross, I. To the cross I cling Know that suffering I do drink Of its work I do see For on in my Savior Both bruised and crushed Showed that God is love God is just, you are just Jesus. And at the cross you beckon me, draw me gently to my knees and I lost for words so lost in
church, not to leave you on somewhat of a somber or down note, not that I apologize for that at all, but I do have one other part of that good news. He rose again, and he is alive. He is alive. And this time next week, we will celebrate that. We will, we will shout with joy. We will cheer in the middle of songs like we never do, though I really wish you did. We'll do all those kinds of things. But, but listen, listen, this week, look at the cross. Meditate on the cross. Do not take your eyes from the cross. Come Friday night. Come worship and have communion with us again. Look to the cross, and then we will celebrate the freedom that it's given us. Amen? God, may you go with these. Lord, may, may we carry this good news, Lord, to those who need it. May we bring good news of your death and resurrection to those who need life. I pray, God, you would fill every seat next week, Lord, with those who need to hear your gospel and then fill the baptism waters after with those who are responding to it. But we ask that you would be glorified in everything that is done. Certainly, how can we make a name out of heritage when we see what you have done for us? Lord, we want this to make your name great. So may you be exalted in this valley and in churches all over the world this week. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I love you guys. Have a great, great week.